Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews 11. We'll read verses 11, uh, 32 to 40. 11, 32 to 40. And our focus will be verses 33 to 38. Hebrews 11, 32. The world was not worthy. The world was not worthy. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Christ we come and we thank you for this word of Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, will fill us and guide us into all truth. We pray, Lord, that we will be convinced of these truths and that we will live just as the saints and the prophets of old did, persevering in the faith, in the face of opposition, any and even intense opposition. Grant to us to enlarge our faith and to also perform acts of righteousness because, Lord, we belong to you. We love you, Lord, and we want to be just like Christ, our Lord and Savior. So conform us to his image as we learn more from your word. In Christ's name, amen. It says in our verse, in verse 38, men of whom the world was not worthy. In the world, the people of the world look at us as though we are strange. And it is very tempting for us to be just like the people of the world. It's very, very tempting for us to be just like the people of the world and in contrast to the way they live, that we might want to live the way they live. In fact, it is very, very popular in Christianity to live just like the world. And it is baptized or christened. There is a sugar coating of Christianity on this belief to live just like the world. It goes by different names. Sometimes it's called the prosperity gospel. It's called health and wealth. It's called positive confession. It's called word of faith. It's got these different names because within Christianity, there is this heretical and dangerous movement among many, many churches and denominations, even among Baptists, where the people think that they live in this world in order to get from God the most that they can get. 
in reference to their health and to their wealth. They are living the world in this world for the world, just like the rest of the world. They aren't living for eternity. They're not thinking Godward and heavenward in their thinking and in their values and their choices, the decisions they make day by day. They are not thinking that way. They are wanting to get from God, and their association with God, and even the name of Christ, is so that they can pray and act and behave in certain ways to get whatever they want. So they are living just like the world, because that's what the people of the world do. They're not living for eternity. They're not living for the glory of God. They're not living in Christ. They're not trying to conform their life to the life of Christ. Well, we, from this passage, we see the complete contrary of that, the complete opposite of that. Because here, if we are living by faith, true faith, then all of these other experiences belong to us. It's not only for the prophets and the saints of old, but also for us to experience these same things. After all, that's why our apostle here is telling us, he's encouraging us to persevere, He's telling us to be patient. He's telling us to practice self-control. He's telling us that we should have faith, that we might be just like the people of old. If we have faith in God Almighty, in, uh, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if we have that, then we will be able to do some of the same things that they did. Let's see what they did. We already saw last time what... Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets did. He's going to now specify some of their feats, some of their acts of righteousness. He's going to specify. We spoke of that last time. And even in this description, though it is an exhaustive description or expansive description, I should say, it's not an exhaustive one in that he hasn't explained every single incident that happened in the Old Testament. And it is therefore for us to go back and read those places in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, to see how they lived by faith and how they lived for a world to come and not for this world. But now let's see how he specifies. We'll begin at verse 33. After mentioning these men of faith, he says, Who by faith, so forth. Notice firstly, he has to remind us that though he has done so throughout the chapter, that this description of all these people is not happening because they have something good in them. It's not happening because they are wiser than other men. They are stronger than other men. They are more adept at conquering people and overcoming trials of life than other men. It doesn't happen that way. It's not by human ingenuity. It's not by the will of man that it happens, but it is by faith, which he has already said in 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith also requires believing in a God who is not seen. Hebrews 11.7 says, not seen. Verse, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses 2, in 11.27, was seeing him who is unseen. Faith in the Bible is in, thing, is in God who is invisible and in the things that God promises to those who believe in this invisible God. 
It takes faith to believe that there is a heaven because we haven't seen heaven. It takes faith also to believe that there is a hell because we have not seen hell. It takes faith to believe in Jesus Christ dying and rising again from the dead for our sins because that happened 2,000 years ago and we didn't see it. We have witnesses who write about it in the 66 books of the Bible. We have witnesses, not just one witness, but many witnesses in the Bible that tell us about that, both predicting it and then announcing it after it has happened. We have them, yet we have not seen it. We have not seen, personally, the death and resurrection of Christ. So faith requires believing in those things which are unseen, especially in the God who is unseen. Faith also, remember, is a gift of God. Every perfect gift comes from above. James 1.17 Every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What do you have that you have not received? 1 Corinthians 4.7 What we have is a gift of God. This faith. So faith is not as it is in the prosperity gospel. It's not something that we conjure up, something that we produce within ourselves. It's not as though if we are positive enough and we positively confess something enough times or with enough emotion or with long, long, long and repetitive prayers, if we do it like that, then we'll get what we want in life. No, that's not what faith in the Bible is. Faith in the Bible is a gift that God gives us and He gives us this ability to trust in Him and to believe in the gospel message. That's what faith is in the Scriptures. Not something that originates in us, but originates from heaven and given to us as a gift. And we place that faith in Christ, in the Word of Christ, in the will of Christ, in conformity to the image of Christ. So keeping that view of faith in mind, what did they do? What did these saints of old do? I believe he primarily has the ones he has in mind in verse 32, but then he says, and the prophets. So he's going to not only mention things that they did, but others did, and even what a couple of women did in verse 35. Now he's speaking about situations, not only specifically, but generally that happen with other individuals. Firstly, that they conquered kingdoms. If we read in 2 Samuel 8, we read of how David conquered several kingdoms. He conquered the Moabites, he conquered the Edomites, he conquered the Philistines, he conquered the Ammonites, he conquered the Arameans or Syrians. He conquered these various surrounding kingdoms because they were threats to Israel. In, in a few cases, they possessed the land of Israel in places they were not supposed to possess, so he conquered them for that reason. And in other reasons, they were threatening to conquer Israel, so he went and conquered them in their territories so that they could not conquer Israel. This, would, this is what David did. He was able to conquer kingdoms. Now, David did not do this because of his own skill and his own wisdom. Yes, he was a skillful soldier. He was a wonderful and victorious commander. He was a very valiant king. He was all those things. But all of that came by faith in Christ. It all came by faith in the unseen God. This is how he was able to conquer, not based on 
himself. And notice, if these kinds of enemies were all around us, would we have done the same as David? Would we have had that kind of faith to conquer all of our enemies all around us? There are very few of us who have moral courage and few of us who have physical courage. Some of us have physical courage, but not moral courage. Some of us have moral courage, but not physical courage. And fewer, fewer of us have both, both physical and moral courage. But if we have faith, we will have both, like David did. He had both. Further, it says, perform acts of righteousness. Perform acts of righteousness. We might think of Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. Saul was supposed to destroy all of the Amalekites, all, including the king. The Amalekites and their animals, he was supposed to remove all of them because they were enemies of Israel and they sought to attack Israel. So God sends King Saul, commissions him to go destroy them all. But Saul did not destroy the king, King Agag. He did not kill him. He spared him. So when Samuel, after Samuel confronted Saul for not doing so, then what did Samuel do as an act of righteousness? He himself, Samuel, the holy prophet of God, the man of God, he went and he slew Agag, and it says he slew him to pieces. He slew him to pieces. He went and performed an act of righteousness, which would be an act of civil righteousness in that he was an enemy. He desired the destruction of the nation and the people of God. Now God said it's time to punish him. Saul refused to punish him as an act of righteousness. So Samuel, in an act of righteousness, says, Okay, now I will, I will take the sword and I will heal him to pieces. I will do so. An act of righteousness. Having the courage that arouses in his heart in order to perform this act. Solomon. Think of Solomon in terms of an act of righteousness. If we study 1 Kings chapters 2 to 3, King Solomon, remember, endowed by the uh, grace of God, endowed with wisdom by the grace of God to have all kinds of ways in which he would be able to discern. And remember, one time, there were two prostitutes living in the same house, and both became pregnant. And then they come to Solomon, and one disputes with the other because one of them lay on top of the infant, and the infant boy died. And so they had a dispute as to which child was whose, right? And the malicious one who slept on her son, she comes and accuses the other one of doing that, and Solomon knew, okay, let's take the living infant and cut him in half and we'll give half and half to each of you. But the one who really had that son, the living son, she said, no, 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 I don't want that to happen. Give, give this living one to her. And Solomon knew right from there. Because of that natural, that natural love and natural emotion for one's own child, that the one who said, no, no, don't slay this child, she was the real child's, the, the, the child's real mother. Solomon knew that. Well, how did he have wisdom to even threaten to do that kind of thing? How would he be able to be a righteous king, the highest authority and judge of the land, 
to distinguish between wickedness and righteousness. Well, that came by faith in God. He had that kind of faith in God. So he also performed acts of righteousness. It further says in verse 33, obtained promises. Obtained promises. Well, who obtained promises? Because later he's going to say, they did not receive the promise. Verse 39, did not receive what was promised. So what promises does he mean here in 33? In 33, I believe he means that some of the temporal promises, they were received. That is, God promised to Moses and his predecessors and to Joshua that they would conquer the land of Canaan. They would inherit the land of Canaan. They would have a very luxurious and posh land, a land flowing with milk and honey for them to be uh, living there for their nation. And God granted it to them. He promised that, and whatever he said, it came to fulfillment. That promise was fulfilled. Or even think about the many other times when they had temptations and difficulties and wars that God promised that he would deliver them if they would simply act in faith, that he would deliver them. And he delivered them. Those promises were fulfilled as well. Further, obtain promises means that when he promised that Christ would come into the world and that he would, for example, give Abraham a son, Isaac, who would be the ancestor of Christ, and give Jacob um, sons who would be the ancestor of Christ. Um, for example, Judah, Jacob's son, will, would be the ancestor. And then he told David that he would be the ancestor, and so forth. These promises and the promise of children, male children, in order for these to be accomplished, actually were accomplished. They received the promises too, in that the promises were the Word of God, the living Word of God to them, and they were to put their hope in all things pertaining to the coming of Christ. He says, shut the mouths of lions. Shut the mouths of lions. We have at least three examples of this in the Old Testament. In the case of Samson, Judges chapter 14, a lion comes out, threatens him, and by the strength God gave him, he overcomes the lion and puts the lion to death. We remember David in 1 Samuel 17. David, as a young man, he wasn't a boy, by the way. People think David was only 7 years old or 10 years old or 12 years old. No, he must have been at least 20 years old when he encountered this lion and he says, and also encountered Goliath. When a lion or a bear came, God gave him the strength to overcome the lion and the bear, and that was that same strength and faith in the same God, Almighty God, who had given victory over Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. And also we have the example of Daniel himself, Daniel the prophet. When Daniel the prophet did no wrong, and he disobeyed the decree of the king, the king had to throw him into the lion's den, which was the punishment for transgressing that decree or that law. And when he was thrown there, the lions did not eat him up. The lions didn't. In fact, it says there in Daniel chapter 6, because he trusted in his God. And the pagan king, Darius, had to acknowledge that he trusted in his God, that Daniel trusted in his God, so the mouths of the lions were stopped. But what did that king do to show that, and, and that it was a miracle of God? 
though God did it by his providence, but the king, in order to show that Daniel was righteous and his accusers were wicked, he threw his accusers and their families into the lion's den, and immediately the lions devoured them. Immediately the lions devoured them, which proves that it was a miraculous feat that he had faith, Daniel had faith, he trusted in his God, therefore God spared him. Moreover, it says in verse 34, quench the power of fire. Quench the power of fire. We might say this happened in Daniel chapter 3 with Daniel's three friends. Daniel had three friends who were commanded to bow down before an idol, a large idol, to bow down with music and a great celebration of pomp. They were to bow down before an idol and worship the idol. But what did they do? They refused to do it. But then they had a second chance. King Nebuchadnezzar brings them into his presence and he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you will not worship and serve this image that I have set up? I'll give you another chance. Whenever all the music is played, you have another chance. You can bow down and then you will not be thrown into the fire. But what did they say? They said, O king, that they would not bow down and worship and God, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he does not deliver us, we will not bow down and worship the image which you have set up. They said that right there in front of the king, the most powerful king in the world that they faced right there. He said, they said no to him. We're not going to do it. God may deliver us from this fire, but he may not deliver us. But we know it is a sin to worship an idol, and we will not do it. We will not bow down. They said in his presence, in his presence, they said that. And what happened? Nebuchadnezzar was so irate that he turned up the heat on the fire seven times more than usual. Seven times more than usual. So hot that the soldiers who were carrying these three men to the fire, taking them to the fire, they were slain by the fire. They weren't even going inside. So then they fall go in, into the fire. They go into the fire. The three men go in. And what happens? They're not burned up. Nothing happens. And in fact, a fourth is there. The angel of the Lord is there. The messenger of the Lord is there. Christ is there. And they're walking around and nothing is happening to them. Nebuchadnezzar is witnessing it. He's astonished that nothing is happening. And then he calls them all out. And he said, is your, or was your God able to deliver you, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And he even acknowledges that their God is, the, is a, a good God, a righteous God, and he is the king of kings. This God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he not only is amazed that they weren't burned, there was no smoke, smell of smoke, they were not singed, nothing had happened to them. And what does he do after that? He exalts them. He promotes them in his kingdom and acknowledges that the God they serve is a real and true God. Mm -hmm. Further, escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 34, escaped the edge of the sword. We know that David in 1 Samuel, constantly from 1 Samuel chapter 18, until 
chapter 31 until Saul dies. From 1 Samuel 18 to 31, David is constantly threatened by Saul to death, right? Threatened by Saul, and David has to run from the sword. And at times, a couple of times, David was in Saul's presence, and Saul takes his spear, and he flings it at David. And David just misses. He escapes. He knows it. He sees it happening. And because of his skill, God-granted skill, he avoids the spear, and he's able to run away. This is the thing that happened to the righteous David by wicked Saul. Elijah. Elijah acknowledges that wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel, they had put the prophets of the Lord to death with the sword. Why? Because just like Elijah, these prophets of the Lord spoke the truth to Ahab and Jezebel, and they hated it. They hated it. They hated it so much, they wanted to silence them by their own deaths. That, that was attempted and that was done to the prophets of the Lord, but Elijah managed to escape. Elijah escaped the sword, but that's what the other prophets experienced. Death by the sword. And in the face of death by the sword, this kind of execution, did they give up? Did they recant? Did they say, no, no, we'll, we'll worship your idols and we will, we will flatter you? Did they say that? No. Nothing. They resisted the temptation to do so and were victorious. Furthermore, he says in verse 34, from weakness were made strong. From weakness were made strong. In the case of Samson, after they cut off his hair, which was God's ordained way of showing his favor on Samson with his long hair, in that exceptional circumstance, the Spirit of God would come upon him, and he would have unusual strength. Well, they cut his hair, and he was weak, and weak enough for them to arrest him and imprison him. We can read about all this in Judges 13 to 16. 13 to 16. But in chapter 16, by that point, after they had cut his hair, his hair grew long again, and when it grew long, his strength returned. He was weak, but then he became strong. And what does he do? From weakness to strength, he takes hold of the pillars of the building by the help of a young man who was guiding him since they plucked out his eyes. They plucked out his eyes, and so he takes hold of the pillars of the building, rests against them, and prays to God for a return of this miraculous strength, and the building collapses and kills 3,000 men and women of the officials of the Philistines. From weakness were made strong. Became mighty in war. Became mighty in war. Also, probably, because they were first weak and timid, and then they became mighty. We have two examples of this. Barak was that way. Barak was commissioned and, and commanded to go and help the people of Israel defeat the Canaanites. But he said, Deborah, Deborah the prophetess and judge, I'll only go if you go with me. So Deborah said, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the glory because it's going to be a woman who, who uh, commits or performs the final blow against the enemies, and she's going to get all the praise and not you. So Barak goes because he's assured that Deborah will go 
And when Deborah says yes, he knows. So he was weak and he became mighty in war in that from weakness of faith and timidity, he overcame that and went out. Gideon is another example. Gideon was afraid of what his enemies might do, the Midianites might do. So he asked God, in faith though, he asked God for a sign that God would surely be with him to defeat the Midianites who were attacking and enslaving Israel. So he, his faith was enlarged, and he became mighty in war, and even though he had only 300 men, he was able to defeat the thousands and tens of thousands of the enemies. Further it says, put foreign armies to flight. Foreign armies to flight. This is likely also alluding back to David and others who foreign armies were attempting to come and invade the land. This happened twice in the time of Moses. The, the people on the eastern side of the Jordan, the two kings, Sihon and Og, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they wanted to come and attack Israel. But what did Israel do under Moses? They were able to defeat these foreign armies and cause them to run away in shame and subdue them and subdue their land. And David did the same. 2 Samuel 8, again, with the various kingdoms, he was able to subdue them and put them to flight. 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Women received back. I believe he has two women in mind. In 1 Kings, 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. In the time of Elijah, 1 Kings 17, and in the time of Elisha, 2 Kings 4, there were women who were given sons, and both sons had some mysterious, sudden illness, and they died. And what did Elijah do? And what did Elisha do? They went to these women, they assured them of the presence of God, they prayed over these sons, and they were raised up from the dead. Now, this was not immortal resurrection. It was another uh, temporary life that they received, and eventually they died again. Because the first one who was raised immortally was Christ our Lord and Savior. He was the first one raised that way, and then in turn, we also will be raised that way. However, by faith, faith of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and then by faith of Elisha and the parents of the boy in Shunem, the Shunammite woman and her husband. Because of faith, this is why they were able to receive their sons back by resurrection. And others were tortured. Others were tortured. He likely is at least referring to Samson, who was tortured. And how was he tortured? they plucked out his eyes. They kept him in prison, they mocked him, they ridiculed him, and in fact they were about to do more of that in the feast of the 3,000 men and women when Samson prayed to God for strength and then they were all killed. But they were torturing him for sure. But it's also possible that the apostle has in mind an incident that happened between the end of the Old Testament and before the New Testament because this incident is not only mentioned by the Jews, but also the early Christians after the time of the apostles. 
an incident where there were seven men and their mother who were tortured and threatened with fire. And one of them was actually put to death. And this king, Antiochus, an evil king of Syria, he was torturing them and taunting them and even trying to get them to convert from their faith to believe in pagans and uh, pagan idolatry just like he did. But they would not do so. Verse 35 also says, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. When he says not accepting their release, if he has in mind this incident in the time of Antiochus, he's called Antiochus um, in the Syrian records and in history, this Antiochus, when he says not accepting their release, if you... If I let you out of prison, and if I stop doing this to you, and stop torturing you, and not threaten you with death, why don't you just come and be a part of my kingdom? Come and be a part of my court. Come and, and you'll be without um, any pain, you'll be without any torture, you can live your life, and you can even have a better life. And it says, not accepting their release, why? That they might obtain a better resurrection. What's the better resurrection? You see, if they had conceded and worshipped false gods, if they had denied the faith and worshipped false gods, their resurrection would have been the resurrection of the unrighteous, the resurrection of the wicked. For it says in Acts 24, 15, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Both the righteous and the wicked. The better resurrection will be our resurrection, we who endure until the very end, because in our resurrection, there's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no torment. There's no persecution. There's only sinlessness. There's only glory. There's only immortality forever and ever in the presence of Christ. Our resurrection for the righteous, for the saints, is better than the resurrection of the wicked. What will happen to the wicked? What will happen to them? They will be raised from the dead. They will have a body forever and ever. But their bodies will be in the lake of fire, in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the everlasting disgrace. It is the eternal torment. It is the place where the light of the sun does not shine. There is flaming fire. There is brimstone, sulfur, that that uh, putrid smell of sulfur, sulfur, that's what they're going to experience forever and ever. Just like it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, it will happen to them in fire and brimstone forever. This is why he says here, they said, we know if we recant, if we deny the faith, we're not going to have the better resurrection. We're going to have that horrendous resurrection, and we don't want that. We want to be with God forever. 36. And others experience mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. In terms of mockings, this could be said of all the prophets. It could be said of all the prophets, particularly, notice, in 2 Chronicles 36. 
2 Chronicles 36, after mentioning Jeremiah earlier in the passage, he says in 36.15, 15 and 16, And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. What? They continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. What did they do to these prophets of God, the messengers of God? They despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, and mocked them. This is what they did to the prophets of God. Because the guilty conscience has to overcome the depression and the torment of their guilt by laughing. So then they will laugh at the one who delivers the message instead of repenting of their sins. So they laugh at the messenger instead of repenting of their sins because of the guilt and torment that they feel. That's what they do. Further, chains and imprisonments. Micaiah, 1 Kings 22, Micaiah the prophet. He was a contemporary of Ahab the king. Now, when Micaiah was brought before Ahab the king for consultation, only because righteous Jehoshaphat said, Ahab, if we're going to go to battle, I know you have all these prophets who are telling you you're going to be successful, go into, into battle, all of your pagan prophets, but can't we ask a prophet of the Lord first? Because Jehoshaphat didn't trust the lying, deceptive, false prophets, the pagan prophets of Ahab who worshipped idols. So Jehoshaphat said, can't we ask the prophet of the Lord? Is there not a prophet of the Lord around here? And Ahab says, yes, there is. His name is Micaiah. Micaiah. But I hate him because he only speaks evil of me and not good. But I hate him because he only speaks evil of me. Ahab, being so stubborn and blind, he didn't want to realize that the reason Micaiah keeps saying evil things about him is he doesn't repent of sin. If you just repent, then I don't have to say anything. If you repent, I don't have to say anything. I can say peace to you. I can say grace to you. I can say all kinds of things if you repent. But if you don't repent, I've got to keep reminding you of what evils you're doing and the punishment for your evils in the lake of fire. Right? So, but Ahab didn't, he didn't want to acknowledge that and repent. So what does he do? After Micaiah says, when you go into battle, you're going to die, your army's going to lose miserably, you will die, and don't tell me I didn't warn you. That's what Micaiah basically told him. So what does Ahab do? He throws him in prison. And he says, feed him sparingly until I return. Feed him sparingly until I return. So he throw, throws him into prison for that. Further, it says in verse 37, they were stoned. They were stoned. We have a righteous man in 1 Kings 21 named Naboth. Here too, Naboth's adversary, persecutor, was King Ahab. In 1 Kings 21, Naboth had a vineyard next to the palace of King Ahab. And Ahab said, hey, 
I've got uh, another piece of property that I can give to you, or I'll just give you money, but I really want this property that's adjacent to my palace because I want to put a garden there. And Nabal said, I can't do that, king. This is the inheritance of my fathers. And they were not supposed to exchange and sell their inheritances, but keep them in the family and keep them in the tribe, wherever the tribes were and the families were. That's the way it was supposed to be. So Ahab knew that law, but he was tempting Naboth with some money or even a better piece of property somewhere else. But Naboth said, no, I can't do that. This is the inheritance of my fathers. Then what does Ahab do with the help of Jezebel? Je it was Jezebel's idea. She said, Ahab, why are you so despondent? You don't need to be despondent. You're the king. So she is trying to make him happy. And how does she do it? She gets a couple of wicked men to accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. They have a trial, a show trial. They accuse him of that. And then after the trial has ended with the false witnesses, they take him out and stone him to death. Mm. Naboth, a righteous man, stoned to death by two wicked rulers and their accomplices, the, the other two wicked men. This is what they did. This happens. This happens when people live righteously. It says also, sawn in two. They were sawn in two. We don't have explicitly an example of this in Scripture. However, there is both outside of the Bible in Jewish writings and in Christian writings, especially in the early church, it was commonly believed that in the time of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, that Isaiah the prophet, we know from the book of Isaiah and from the book of Kings and Chronicles, that Isaiah was his contemporary, and uh, Hezekiah's temporary, contemporary, and Manasseh's. So in the time of Manasseh, who was a vile and wicked king, during his reign, for, for much of his reign, he was vile and wicked. He later repented. But during the time of his wickedness, what did Manasseh do according to these extra-biblical writings? He threatened the life of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet found a hollow log. He went and hid in this hollow log. And then Manasseh said, okay, he's over there. And he got his hitmen to go over to that hollow log and saw the log in two while Isaiah the prophet was hiding inside there. Not allowing him to escape. And while he's in there, he had him sawn in two. King, evil king, before he repented, evil king Manasseh did that against Isaiah the prophet. And it's likely that that's not the only incident since he says it in the plural. They were sawn in two. They were sawn in two. Further, verse 37, they were tempted. Tempted. Now your Bible might say tempted or you might have a different translation or a footnote that says they were burned. They were burned. It is likely that he has reference to burning, but if it's burning or if it is temptation, either way, we do know that these things happen. Let's say if it was in reference to temptation, they were tempted. Was not Job tempted? 
He was tempted by Satan, and Satan and Satan's um, his, Satan's instruments, such as the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, who came and attacked Job's possessions, killed some of his people. He, he was tempted by that. He was also tempted by his own wife, right? The wife said, after all of these troubles came upon Job, his wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Curse God and die. Just curse God, and, and God will be so upset at you that he'll put you to death quickly, and you won't have to live in this misery and bad health and all these other things, and this new poverty that you are experiencing. You won't have that anymore. Just curse it and die. But he resisted this temptation. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God and not accept evil or adversity, trouble? Are we only going to take good things from God and not take evil things that come our way and resist those evil things? So he resisted temptation. Job did. Mm. There's also an incident in the intertestamental period of them being threatened with burning. It was the incident I mentioned earlier about Antiochus. This is how they were threatened. They were threatened to be burned to death. Even, we might say, in Daniel chapter 3, they were threatened to be burned to death. Further, it says, they were put to death with the sword. Put to death with the sword. We've already mentioned, Elijah says, they have killed your prophets by the sword in 1 Kings 19, 10. But also we note in 1 Samuel 22, another incident occurred when the true pro uh, prophets or priests or saints of the Lord were put to death. It was in the time of King Saul in a city or a town called Nob, N-O-B, N-O-B, Nob in 1 Samuel 22. Saul believed that these righteous priests were conspiring with David to make David king, but the priests didn't know anything about it. That's not what they were doing. They were simply trying to protect David because they knew him to be a righteous man. But they didn't know they were protecting David from Saul. But Saul accuses them of conspiring together, and then what does he do? He orders one of his hitmen to slay the priests of Nob. And they, he slew them all, killed them with the sword. What could they have done? Knowing that Saul was more powerful than David, they could have also recanted. They could have also said that, but they didn't. They persevered. Further, in 37, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. They went about like this, in sheepskins, goatskins, further. Well, who is it that had to flee constantly, who had to run from their adversaries. We know Elijah had to do that from Ahab. We know that David had to do that from King Saul. We know that Jeremiah had to do that. Read in Jeremiah how his contemporary evil kings of Judah were constantly trying to put him to death, and the officials of the king were trying to arrest him and put him to death. And when they went about, were they not destitute? Were they not afflicted? Were they not ill-treated? In the case of Jeremiah, they, were, they even put him in a muddy cistern, a muddy cistern or a well, where he was going to sink into the mud and drown and suffocate in that mud. 
that muddy cistern. Thankfully, though, there was a righteous man who said, no, no, let's not do that. He got the king uh, to agree to it, and the king said, okay, you can go and deliver him out of the cistern, which happened. Yet still, was he not mistreated and ill-treated by the people? Hmm. 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. This further describes what we just said. In the case of Elijah, he did have to go to mountains and caves. He did have to flee to Horeb or Sinai, way, uh, far away from Ahab and Jezebel. He had to go to a barren and parched area in order to survive, and God had to assure him when he went to the mountains and caves that God would feed him while he was there. God would keep his body sustained and strong with food and water while he was there. He had to do things like that. The saints have to do things like that, just like the prophets. Finally, 38, it says, Men of whom the world was not worthy. Not worthy? Men of whom the world was not worthy? Why does the apostle have to say this? Because people, the onlookers, the spectators, when they see these things happening, even the saints, even the saints when they experience these things happening, they might think there must be something sinful with those saints. There must be something wrong in what they're doing, what they're believing, what their faith is, what their hope is, the way that they live, the way that they conduct their life, there must be something wrong with them. Now this can happen even in our own minds when we're being persecuted, but it might also happen, it commonly does happen with the people of the world. They, they say, well, if he was thrown into prison, there must have been a good reason. If something bad happened to him, God must be uh, against him. If he doesn't have enough food and drink, and he's running away from people, there must be something he did wrong. He's just hiding it. This is the way people think. But he says this, men of whom the world was not worthy to anticipate that wrong thinking. He's anticipating that wrong thinking and saying, listen, I'm clarifying to you, if the problems that the saints experience are not because of the sins of the saints. It's not because they are intentionally uh, avoiding people because they don't want to get along with people. It's not as though they are troublemakers. They're not rabble-rousers. They're not the ones who are trying to cause rebellion and revolt and insurrection in our nations. The saints are not like that. The saints are peaceable people. The saints want to live in tranquility. They want to live a quiet life. They want to raise their families. They want to love their neighbor. They want to love God. They want to worship and serve God in peace. And they want others to have the same experience of eternal salvation, so they preach against the sins of other people. They're not the troublemakers of society. They're not the criminals of society. The society isn't worthy to have godly people like them around. That's the way we should look at it. The society, the culture, the world, they are not worthy to have us continuing to live in this world. Because they have no taste for it. They have a distaste for it. To them, the way we live is bitter. The way we live is restricted. The way we live is a burden to them. The way we live 
even arouses their guilt. It arouses their guilt. They feel guilty about the way they think and live based on what they see in us. We're not tempted as they are tempted many times. And so they're jealous of us. They're angry at us. And then they retaliate. This is the way in which we are not worthy of the world. Or the world is not worthy of us. We don't belong together, he's saying. We don't belong together. But remember, not because we are doing wrong, but because they are doing wrong in their attacks and persecutions of us. They are the ones doing wrong, and we're, they are not worthy to have us around. So, what makes us like this? As we said at the start, it's our faith. It's our faith in the true gospel of Christ. Our faith causes us to walk in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Our faith causes us to look to the unseen God, to the unseen heaven, that heaven that will indeed be a reality one day. And that faith is what is our hope. We have this kind of hope. Now, one might say, finally, one might say, well, the prophets and the apostles, and even Christ, they are to suffer like this, they are to be persecuted like this, but not us. This suffering, this kind of persecution, this kind of endurance until the end, it's not meant for us, it's not for the believer, it's for the special ones, those who have the office of prophet, apostle, maybe for pastors, but not for everybody else. This actually is the way a lot of people think. However, remember Matthew 5? Matthew 5, 10 to 12 says, to all of us, remember he's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to all the disciples. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revolve you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying it is a blessing to be persecuted for righteousness. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. We are blessed when they revile us. When they say evil things falsely because of Christ. Because of our association to Christ. And he also tells us rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. The more we are persecuted must mean we are living righteously. We are living righteously. And we should rejoice and be glad in that. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember I said, many people think prophets are persecuted, but not saints generally. Here he says, even saints generally are persecuted just like the prophets. The prophets, in terms of moral righteousness, they were supposed to live a holy, godly life. They were supposed to be pious people, right? They're supposed to live according to the will of God in Christ. So to the extent that we are practicing morality or our ethics that conforms to the ethics of Christ, the prophets did that, and we do that, 
then we will be just like the prophets. We will be treated or mistreated just like the prophets. Yes, we don't have an oracle from God. We don't have God speaking to us audibly in a vision of the night, right? We don't have these kinds of things that happen. So we're not prophets in that way. We don't have miraculous abilities that uh, at once we can call upon God's miraculous power and perform miracles. We're not prophets in that way or apostles in that way. However, in terms of our life, our morality, our holiness, our righteousness, we are like the prophets, and to the extent that we live like the prophets, in the face of death, in the face of torment, we will experience the same. First Peter, first Peter four twelve. First Peter four twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We should not be surprised. Why? Because God loves us. He cares for us. He has this future glory for us. And it will happen when Christ returns. That's why. Because there's something better for us than there is for the wicked. So let us endure. Let us obey the gospel of God. Let us do the will of our God. And entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That means... First Peter, he's saying the same as Jesus in Matthew 5. First Peter, Peter is equating our experience to just like the prophets, because in chapter 1 he mentions the prophets. So the, the Bible is very clear that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 so let us look at these examples, endure in our faith, because it's also intended for us to persevere, endure, to stay strong and steadfast until we meet Christ face to face. Because there's something better for us in the life to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you will grant us this kind of faith to endure no matter what comes in our direction. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. Give us more of this spirit of glory and of God resting upon us. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior.